Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. As part of Pride Month, I wanted to tackle LGBTQ plus discrimination in the workplace. Discrimination against individuals of the LGBTQ community was codified as illegal just about a year ago in June 2020 by the U.S. Supreme Court when they added sexual orientation and gender identity to classifications protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. It was a victory for equality, but as we all know too well, legal protections do not equal the end of discrimination. A recent IBM and Out and Equal survey found significant and persistent discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community in the workplace. I'm pleased to be joined today by two experts. The first is Ella Slade, the global LGBTQ plus leader at IBM. They worked at IBM's global diversity and inclusion team within HR and have been in their role for two years. Ella first joined IBM as an intern in 2014 and worked in talent attraction for five years before their current role. We also have with us today CV Viverito. They are the deputy director of global programs and stakeholder engagement without an equal workplace advocates where they manage programming aimed at advancing LGBTQ workplace inclusion in Brazil, Latin America, China, and India. Through partnerships with NGOs and multinational and national corporations, they play a key role in the development and implementation of organizations' global strategy and activities. Drawing from a variety of sources, local experts, and stakeholders, they oversee the curation of Out and Equals globally focused content. They are here to help HR and employers understand the results of this survey, and drive real and lasting progress in the workplace for LGBTQ plus employees. Ella and CV, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, so I was looking over the study that, that you guys sent over, and there'll be a link to that in the description. Um, it showed that 45% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people say their employer discriminates against people who share their sexual orientation. So are we moving forwards or backwards on this issue? I think just to kind of kick things off, I think it's a tricky one. I think in many ways we are moving forwards and we're continuing to, to see great progress and great kind of um, initiatives and things working towards inclusion. But we are also seeing backtrack as well. We're seeing backtrack when it comes to things like legislation. Um, when we look at countries like the US, like Hungary, um, you know, there are certain you know, bills and stuff that are coming forwards that are kind of sending us backwards a bit as well. Um, So I think it is a delicate balance. I think overall, when we look at the overall kind of arc and the journey of LGBT plus rights, we are still moving forwards. Um, But there have definitely been some um, speed bumps, uh, so to say, um, in kind of more recent years, I'd say. Yes, speed bumps. Um, I totally agree. Uh, And that's like the, I'd say that's the nature really of any movement. Um, I think change is really hard to feel and notice when you're in it. Um, but when we zoom out, thankfully we see a general progression, um, on a lot of different issues, including this one. Um, even, even to note some milestones, if you will, um, you know, last year, actually almost exactly last year, uh, title seven in the U S you know, um, was read to include, sexual orientation and gender identity um, in non-discrimination in the workplace. Even in Brazil, the year before that, almost exactly a year before that, um, the Brazil Supreme Court criminalized actually LGBTQ 
discrimination, which includes the workplace. And so, yes, generally we see progression, but as with any movement, it also creates backlash. And so, um, and that's, that's what we do. It's a continuous, arduous practice of promoting, uh, you know, equity and equality. Yeah, that, you know, um, new and updated interpretation of Title VII, I mean, it was a pretty big deal. I don't remember how many states it was, but there were I think more than 10 that allowed oh, yeah. allowed you to discriminate against people. Yeah, it was almost half. Wow, I didn't, I didn't even know it was that much, but it's just crazy to think that, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine, but, you know, it's because I'm on, on this side of it. So I can only, you know, and then there's this sort of this other thing that happens when a, a law like that passes where, you know, a lot of people think, okay, well, it's over, right? We did it. We did it. Mm-hmm. We got the law passed, you know, and unfortunately all of the, all the impetus behind why those states and and the people in those states felt that it was okay to discriminate against LGBTQ people uh, didn't go away, right? They're still there. Oh yeah. So are you guys, you know, diving into that at all? Are you taking a look at, are you focusing in those areas? You know, what's your approach there? Uh, yeah, I can, I can take this one first. It's, it's exactly as you mentioned and also what, what Ella mentioned, you know, to kick us off with, with change, unfortunately, comes that backlash. And so we saw that amazing progress. Um, and it is, it's, it's amazing, it's incredible, it's important, uh, the decision in 2020. However, this year, we've already seen, we're actually at, unfortunately, a record um, of over 200 bills proposed that are anti-LGBTQ. Um, over 100 of those are specifically anti-trans bills, and already 18 have been passed into law. And this is data from the US. And that is, unfortunately, a terrible record. Um, And of course, it comes right after the announcement of Title VII. And so when we make progress, there's a little bit of fighting back and there's navigating of this kind of legal gray area to try to get things passed into law. Um, And one thing that, you know, here on the out and equal side, um, what we're doing with our partners, including IBM, Um, is creating resources on how uh, the private sector can have a voice there and can create impact. Um, To be specific, um, recently put out a resource about how your employee resource groups can actually leverage their voice to influence public policy. And it lays out some practical guidance on things that we can do. Um, And it was actually one of the takeaways from from the, the study as well, which I'm sure Ella can speak to. Yeah, so um, from from my perspective and from the IBM kind of perspective, um, advocacy has always been really important to us as an organisation. We've always made sure that you know we are um, being outward facing in terms of our diversity and inclusion stances. So, um, and I know that that was one of the key takeaways that we included in the LGBT plus report was that we would like other organisations um, or to challenge other organisations to use their brand eminence for good. Um, in the world and to really look at the state of the world, look at some of the bills exactly like um, CV mentioned that have been passed, that have been put forward in 2021 alone and see what you can do as an organisation to stand up against those and what other organisations you can work with, you can partner with, how you can be effective um, as a large organisation, work with your employees and with um, other NGOs um, to really make change. And I think it's... um, I think it's our responsibility as large organizations to do that because I think we have to be 
um, supportive of our employees and of their rights wherever they are, um, regardless of whether that's when they're in the office or when they walk outside that office door. Um, we want to make sure that they are protected and that they have um, you know, the rights that they deserve. Yeah, I agree that large organizations really do bear a lot of responsibility um, when it comes to these things. They, they can help push movements that are beside the law, you know, and, and often it's somewhat inspiring to see that the, you know, the fortune 500 companies tend to be on the cutting edge uh, of, you know, of progress because they see, they see the research, they see what it does to, to an organization when they do discriminate, when they don't make people feel welcome, you know, what that costs them. Um, And of course they have all that influence, you know, when a company like IBM does something that gets published, uh, that goes out and into press releases, it gets picked up by, by media organizations. And that can really, I think, influence a lot of, uh, a lot of the other players in the field. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, Yeah. It's not just us as an organization having an impact on our employees. It is the impact that us as an organization that has on other organizations too. Um, So yeah, I completely honestly agree. I do want to get to, you know, some of those tangible things that we can do, that organizations can do to, to make a lasting difference. Um, but there are a couple other points I want to talk about first. Um, you know, 45% of people, uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people um, being discriminated at during work, is that's a huge, huge percentage of the workforce. And obviously represents an, an incredible challenge and it's in many ways tragic. But then there was this other result about 7% of senior executives um, are LGBTQ. And I thought that was particularly shocking. I know that diversity amongst executives is already a challenge um, when you look at it from other other metrics like race or, or even gender. But uh, is there something in particular that is barring um barring LGBTQ people from occupying more senior positions? Personally, I kind of think there's two different ways of looking at it. There's the way that is looking at the pipeline of of employees and talent development and looking at how you are supporting your LGBT plus talent and ensuring that they have mentors, sponsors, great opportunities that they're given it, you know, access to training, all those sorts of things. And that they're, you know, in an inclusive culture to begin with so that they are able to progress up the ranks, so to speak. Um, So I think that's kind of one aspect of it and one element to it. Um, But then the other side is that that 7% probably is, well, it is 7% of out, um, you know, LGBT plus executives, whereas um, there will be people out there who are executives who are LGBT plus but are not out. Um, and that's also a huge thing. I think we forget about or we often maybe gloss over the fact that when someone comes out, they are then incredibly visible because there are not that many of us. Um, and that is fantastic for the community in terms of they get this role model that they can look up to and they can say, you know, you know, this person's made it to, to this particular role. Maybe one day I can do that. And that is amazing. Um, however, that puts a lot of pressure on the individual. So it's not just a case of casually mentioning um, you know, how you identify. Um, it suddenly becomes more complex than that. And that can be a lot to take on as an individual as well. Um, 
I know we've talked a little bit already about kind of legislation and that side of things too. Um, we've also got to remember that maybe people um, aren't as comfortable as being out, um, depending on the current state of affairs, uh, where they are located locally. Um, when it comes to LGBT plus legislation and kind of discrimination and all that kind of stuff. So I think it, it is a balance between making sure that we are filling the pipeline and helping top talent to develop. Obviously, that takes time as well. Um, and then also making sure that we have that inclusive culture um, where where executives feel comfortable coming out and feel like they um, would have that support from their organization as well. Yeah. I, I could not agree more, Ella. Um, like you say, it's in part the discrimination we just discussed. We know 45% um, feel discriminated against, which is obviously a barrier. But as you say, it's also as an LGBTQ person looking around and thinking, okay, nobody whose simple existence is proving that I can be an executive or that my hard work is going to pay off. And it is a pervasive, sometimes subconscious, sometimes very loud message of just, you know, don't bother. Um, and when you're in a position of power, also as an LGBTQ person, you might feel imposter syndrome, which is something that we heard a lot about, a lot about in the jam. Um, folks feeling that sense of, you know, doubt, self-doubt, feeling like a fraud, um, questioning gosh, did I, did I get here as some sort of a token? Am I deserving of this space? Because I'm the only one um, that looks like me that identifies the way that I do. It's a, it's a constant pressure that other folks in that position may not feel. Um, and, you know, not to mention even getting to that position, um, what's, what's very important is to create a sustainable, nurturing culture um, within that rank of any company, you know, are you going to be feeling that you're there for a reason that your that your ideas, your perspectives are being taken just as seriously as others? Or are you unfortunately going to be driven out because it's just a little bit too difficult? And so the solution is really in culture change and targeted, you know, as Ella mentioned, targeted growth, mentorship, pipeline programs for for underrepresented folks. I'd like to just switch a little bit to you know, they always talk about the business case for diversity, right? Um, I want to look at it from the other perspective, which is what does it cost uh, an employee that's being discriminated against uh, or that's being underrepresented in senior management? And what does it cost employers? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole, like you say, the, the business case sort of thing has been talked about quite a bit, but I like the aspect of looking at it from kind of a cost perspective. I mean, in the bluntest sense, you will lose your employees. You know, if employees are being discriminated against um, based on their gender identity, gender expression or sexual orientation, they will either leave the organization, um, they will not be happy. Um, I think one key thing to mention here as well, and this does get slightly more serious, is is the mental health um, issues that the LGBT plus community um, can face and the disproportionate amount of mental health problems that people within the community experience. Um, and I think that's due to many, many different factors. But, you know, if you grow up in a um, maybe slightly more conservative family, um, you know, you, you will suppress big parts about yourself and who you are for long, long periods of time. And the damage that that can do to someone can be huge. So then to enter the workforce, having accepted yourself finally and finally been ready to come out and then to receive discrimination, um, 
people aren't willing to stand for it. Um, so in the kind of simplest ways, they'll either leave the organization or, um, you know, they'll, they'll just really, really not be happy. Um, and ultimately people won't be productive. You know, you will not get the most out of your, your workforce if you do not have a, an environment where people can be themselves. Um, I mean, little things like being able to, um, just have conversations with your colleagues about what you did at the weekend um, and not feel like you have to be conscious of what pronouns you are using when you're talking about your partner. Um, being able to have those free-flowing conversations is huge and makes such a difference in terms of the relationships you're able to build with your colleagues as well. And one of the other things that we saw in the jam um, was that 9% of our jam respondents uh, said that they um, currently do not... Um, express their gender authentically in the workplace so nine percent like that's one in ten pretty much um that's huge that's such a huge proportion that aren't bringing their whole authentic selves to work when it comes to their gender as well um and yeah you've just got to think about that having a, a something going on in your personal life that is so huge and so significant um it's no surprise that, you know, once people come out as trans or once people come out as non-binary or any other identity under the LGBTQ plus umbrella, um, that people are more productive because they're just so much more relaxed and they're able to build much better relationships with their colleagues um, and really just be themselves. And, you know, one thing we talk about a lot at IBM is around um, uh, diversity of thought. Um, and it is really, really true. You know, if, if you have a, a room full of people that all look the same or sound the same or identify the same, have very similar lived experiences, the ideas that they're going to bring to the table are all going to be very similar. Um, whereas if you have a, a room full of people that are all incredibly diverse, have come from different backgrounds, identify differently, have had just such different life experiences those ideas that you're going to generate are going to be so different and um, so much more innovative. So I think that's definitely a, a real angle to it as well. Yeah. And I think that it, it, you know, and this should be obvious, but it probably bears repeating, you know, they're just like everybody else, right? And they want to come to work just like everybody else to do work, not worry about how they're perceived, not worry about you know, did they say the wrong, the wrong quote unquote thing? And now there's, you know, there's backlash or, or even if there isn't backlash, there's fears of backlash concerns that that look that someone gave you uh, is a, is a knowing look instead of just like, they're just saying, Hey, it's so much energy is spent in, um, worrying about that stuff. And they just like everybody else just want to go and get their work done. And it's really employers need to understand that if you want the best work out of your employees, you know, give them a nice free space for them to remove all distractions, not just the sound and that guy who stops by and bugs you at your cubicle, um, who's usually me, actually. Uh, <laughs> and I will not be stopped. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you want to take all those distractions away so that they can just focus on the work. Um, and I, I think there's probably, so, you know, if you're not, not having diversity of thought costs you, but then it costs you even more because you just don't, you don't really access even ordinary innovation, ordinary thought. If someone's worrying the whole time that they're at work, uh, about who they are, I found something interesting in the, in the survey, which was 
about the role that the pandemic played on LGBTQ employees. I was having trouble understanding what was happening there. Um, do you guys just mind explaining what your findings were and why? Yeah, sure. I can kind of start things off on this one. So, um, I mean, the the pandemic obviously has had such individual impact on every single person. Everyone has impacted and experienced it differently. And one of the things that um, we can really clearly see when it comes to the LGBT plus community um, is that when you're talking about people who maybe are out at work, for example, um, and are maybe involved in their network group at work, um, or their business resource group or whatever you call it, um, maybe due to quarantine, maybe they are isolating with their family. Um, maybe they don't normally live with their family. Maybe they're now back home living with a family that um, doesn't know that they identify as LGBT+. Um, so it therefore then means that they are having to be very, very careful about what work meetings they attend, if they attend any any meetings to do with their business resource group, um, any conversations that they're having, and they're really having to almost sense themselves and kind of split their personality slightly in terms of um, how they present themselves outside of work in, in kind of the home and then also, you know, on, uh, on work calls as well. Um, but I think the reverse is also true. There will also be many employees who are um, out in their personal life, um, but are not out at work. And suddenly because of, you know, things like Zoom and video calls that are happening now, um, we're suddenly expected to be to, to let our colleagues into our lives in such an intimate way, in the sense that they can see, you know, the wall behind me, they can see the posters I've got up, the artwork I have on the walls. Maybe I have a pride flag hanging up. Maybe I have some queer art on the wall or or something in my background, or maybe my partner walks past in the background of a, of a meeting. Um, all these things mean that we are suddenly so vulnerable um, because there is nothing to really hide behind anymore. That that work-life balance and separation no longer exists because it is there in a little box on the screen. Um, so I think things like that definitely play a huge part in terms of um, how LGBT plus people experience the pandemic um, and how they're able to, to show up at work through the pandemic as well. Um, that was definitely something that kind of came out of the jam quite a lot um, as well and that was uh, really clear to see. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just to piggyback off that, it's it's... Well, it's absolutely true. And, and as you both mentioned, you know, we saw in the report that 43% of LGB respondents say they were really struggling with the work and home life balance. And that was compared to 34% um, of non-LGB folks. And, and there's been other data, um, you know, earlier on uh, in the pandemic that was showing um, that, you know, 36% of LGBTQ folks in the U.S., um, or sorry, LGBTQ folks were 36% more likely than the general population to have lost work during COVID. Um, and those that identified as queer and trans on that survey, 30% said that their work hours had been reduced as opposed to 22% overall. And so that's where we see those 43%, not to keep naming numbers, of folks who are saying that they experience discrimination in the workplace. That's taking effect when, when the pressure is on in a pandemic and difficult decisions are having to be made. Um, and then just socially, emotionally, uh, it is all of the things that Ella mentioned, um, the, the vulnerability of having your personal life bleed into your work life, as well as going through, you know, dealing with the news um, and all of the 
injustices that have happened over the, this past year and a half, nearly two years, dealing with it alone, um, not having as much of a network, not being able to go out to your local queer friendly space, whatever that may be, if you have one, and just talk about it with your friends. Um, instead, you might be stuck inside in a somewhat hostile environment or at least in an isolated environment. And of course, um, that aspect of your mental health is going to bleed into your work life as well. And it, it, it definitely adds a layer of, of stress and difficulty. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think just to kind of build on that, I think that's why creating those safe queer spaces is so important. And certainly kind of with, within IBM, we... Um, we hold a weekly community call for anyone from the LGBT plus community or allies are welcome to join. It's the most informal thing. It's literally just my, uh, my on my kind of video video chat every single week. Uh, we just meet for 30 minutes and we can talk about anything we want. Um, people will bring up what's happening in their personal life. Maybe some something they're struggling with as part of their day job. Maybe something that they're working on with a charity that they volunteer with. Um, but we just really wanted to create that safe space where people can just share and connect with other queer folk. Because exactly like CV mentioned, for a lot for for many many members of the LGBT plus community, being part of um, either queer volunteering groups or being able to go to a local LGBT plus venue or bar or anything like that is a huge kind of lifeline for people and being able to tap into a community and be surrounded by other LGBTQ plus people is so, so important. And I think because of the pandemic, a lot of that was lost. So we've really made an effort to make sure that we still have that sense of community within kind of the space of IBM um, and make sure that we're doing extra events that are happening all around the world virtually so that everybody can get involved and everybody can join in um and we really have i would probably say where we are right now today we probably have a stronger sense of community than we were uh, as in at, at ibm and the lgbt plus community than we were probably about 18 months ago um and i think a big part of that is because of the pandemic and because people have looked in towards their colleagues and towards their lgbt plus ibm colleagues um, for that safe space and for that community. That's really good advice. Um, and, and that's that's what I want to talk about next. But just briefly, you know, seeing those differences in who got let go and who got hours reduced was disappointing. Um, I think it's something we don't really talk about, um, particularly uh, in the world of HR. But there's a there's a whole percentage of of managers and and, uh, and leaders out there that have someone they want to fire and uh, someone they want to let go and they can't because they have a HR person telling them that would be discrimination or that person has they don't have even though we're at will there's no real good reason to let this person go and I think when the pandemic happened there was a sort of a purge if you will where organizations said, okay, now we have basically, uh, you know, what is it, a carte blanche to just let go whoever, whoever we want, because we can just say it's the pandemic. And I think, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't seen any studies on that particular thing, but it, is, the, is that what's going on with the more people being let go that are, are LGBTQ or having their hours reduced? It's just a straight up discrimination thing. The, that poll is from um, HRC, and it was a poll of about a thousand people, and it didn't give, um, or I shouldn't say that. Uh, I' not sure, 
uh, if it gave any particular insight as to why. Um, but just looking at the numbers, we know there's something going on there. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if it's what you just mentioned. I think that would probably require a bit more digging. Um, but it could be what, you know, the, the IBM study found, which is that, hey, if 45% of LGBTQ folks are saying um, that their employer does discriminate um, against folks who share their sexual orientation, I mean, there's a sign there. Um, and so when we just compare data point to data point to data point, we, be, we do begin to paint a picture of um, the reality of working as an openly LGBTQ person um, and the, the change that has left to be made Thank you. You have mentioned, you know, creating a safe space, um, you know, and in preparation for this, there was uh, uh, in the document you guys sent over, you said there was some hope. So I want to, you know, move into that sort of that area. What what hope exists and, you know, how what are these uh, these methods that you guys have for getting real change to not only occur, but also remain at organizations? I think there definitely is hope. Um, I like to think that there's hope. I think I don't think me and CV would be in our jobs right now if we didn't have some <laughs> hope that things would get better and that we could impact and influence positive change for the LGBTQ plus community um, globally. Um, in terms of things that I think have given me hope or have made me feel more hopeful, um, seeing senior leaders just say, I want to learn, I want to listen, teach me, I think that kind of openness and vulnerability really to say, this is an area I don't know much about. I need help. I need educating. Um, I think is so powerful. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. I can work with that. People that are open-minded and people that are keen to learn. Um, and I think I've seen more and more of that um, in the kind of recent years of people just being like, honest about what they don't know whereas I think potentially more so in the past there was a lot of people didn't know so they just avoided the whole topic and would just shy away from it um whereas I think more so now there's just that keen keenness to learn and to expand our own knowledge and I think a lot of that over the last five um 18 months or so has come from so many different you know conversations around um like the Black Lives Matter movement and you know white people just sitting there and saying actually this is a topic I don't know enough about. I need to educate myself. And I think that whole mentality of having to be, you know, anti-racist and having to, to, to proactively learn about communities with which you don't identify, um, I think has really shifted the mindset of a lot of people. And I think a lot of people now, um, whatever minority uh, we're talking about, um, have just said, right, I want to learn. I want to be the best ally I can be. And I think I've seen much more of that over the last kind of year, um, year or so um, than I have done before. And that definitely, definitely gives me hope that we're heading in the right direction. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> you, see, you said it, we would not be in this job if we didn't have hope um, or we'd be terrible masochists, um, <laughs> and, which maybe it's a little bit of both. But um, like I said before, I think change is hard to feel when you're in it. And it is when you step back that you begin to, really see the true picture that change is absolutely happening. And same experience as Ella, I, I feel it in my day-to-day -day conversations with people, both in and out of the workplace. Um, they have changed. People are, I would say, more generally knowledgeable, more empathetic, or 
at least very open and willing and eager um, to learn more and to do better. And this, of course, is reflected in the workplaces. Workplaces are changing as well. Um, and, you know, the younger generations, I think, are um, being more specifically Gen Z and millennials are absolutely some of the ones that are driving this change. And I will, of course, note um, that that is in great part due to other generations that have forged the path and have worked so hard to create the space where, you know, for example, um, millennials and Gen Z are twice as likely to openly identify as LGBTQ. That's in great part thanks to the to the work that was forged ahead of them. Um, but you know, by by 2025, millennials are going to be approximately three fourths of the global workforce, and you know, one in six of them know someone who uses gender neutral pronouns. Um, they also believe in the role of the private sector. There was a study that showed that generally speaking, um, they do believe in the corporate voice and that there's a space to really create impact and therefore they seek alignment with their personal values and the company that they work for. And so the change is happening. Um, and it, I think it's a really pivotal, excuse me, pivotal moment um, for us to, to ride this momentum and continue to, to forge ahead. I like to hear all that. It is it is encouraging. You know, it's funny. I think back when I was a kid, and I don't, I always just assumed it was just the uh, the cruelty of children. But it was like growing up as a boy, anything you did that was different than anyone else, and you were, you know, the f word, the other f word, and no one was saying, "Hey, wait, don't say that. Um, that's wrong." Or or there was no really no defending. Uh, going on, at least not that I saw. Um, but now, you know, when somebody has anti-gay, you know, uh, beliefs or thoughts and, you know, comes out in a conversation, I mean, it almost never does. That could be where I live. But it's just, it's it's surprising and shocking. Um, and in the sense that it's just, it's rare to me. I don't know, you know, like I said, it's anecdotal. So I take it with a grain of salt, but that shift, you know, I, I kind of remember like my, my friend's parents openly being discriminatory or, or joking about gay people. And you just don't hear that now, you know? So we've, you know, us millennials, we really have lived some of those changes. Um, and it's important to recognize them around you. I think, yeah, I was just going to add on that one. I think it's it's shifted and it's changed. I wouldn't say it's stopped. Um, I think the discrimination is still there. Right. I think it's more subtle. Um, and I think your your comment about you know um, if a boy was doing something that wouldn't be kind of stereotypical of boys and stuff, those you know gender norms and gender expectations put on kids are still there and if anything stronger than ever i mean you know 10 20 years ago there was no such thing as a gender reveal party um now they're everywhere and they're huge and um so i think things are in a sense more gendered now and i think that has a huge impact on um especially the the lives of you know trans and and non-binary and gender non-conforming kids and how they grow up and how they see the world. Um, so I think even though um, specifically anti-gay or anti, 
LGB language um, has maybe shifted or gone down a little bit. Um, there's still that reinforcement of this is what girls do, this is what boys do, and no, you can't do that. And I think that language has been around for a while, but I think if anything is is still very strong. Um, and the impact that that has on on trans youth is is so incredibly damaging. So I'd say that the the discrimination I'd say has shifted. Um, I wouldn't say it's kind of you know those conversations have completely stopped. I just say they take slightly form now. Um, I don't know, CV, if you have anything to add on that. Oh yeah, I mean, relatable. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's 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 it has. Uh, and what has also happened in tandem is that it has been shifted much more towards public discourse. Um, and so we see it happening. Um, we, celebrities are talking about it. It's in the news. It's um, be, caught between a bit of a culture war in the political world. Um, and so not only is that conversation happening, but it's it's really, really in our faces. Um, and so I really feel, I mean, I really feel for my, you know, trans and non-binary younger siblings who, um, you know, all over the world who get, who have to deal with this in their face and their very, you know, core of who they are being attacked in the media, being debated as if it were up for debate in the first place. Um, you know, that's, that's really difficult. It's difficult for me. And I came out as non-binary years ago and I feel secure in who I am. And I can't imagine hearing all of this and seeing it pop up on my phone and hearing friends and family talk about it as I'm still in the process of coping. Um, it's already difficult as is, but yeah, it, it, it has shifted and it is very becoming a very public conversation, which can be difficult. It can also be good because the, the voices that are on the right side of history are also being risen and giving more, giving more of a louder voice and visibility. And so, um, yeah, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to that, but it does make things at least um, more accessible to the public, which yeah has has pros and cons, <laughs> but is overall good. I mean, we want to be we want to be talking about this thing. Um, we want to be um, making sure that we normalize conversations around gender and spread awareness, but it it doesn't come without its difficulties. Yeah, those are both really good points. Um... And thank you for sharing them. I, I guess I've been experiencing it, but I haven't really thought about how gendered everything is now. You know, and, and as you guys are saying that, it reminds me of, you know, a movement in the late 60s by, you know, essentially racist white people uh, that were entering, you know, like uh, uh, people are entering politics as racist in a, in a world that's a little bit less accepting of them. And they came up with a new language to talk about it. Right. So it wasn't coming out and and calling people the N word and and telling them, you know, the racist things that they were thinking. It was focusing on white communities and um, building, you know, you know, strengthening white virtues. It was the same thing, still bigotry, but it was looking at, you know, they're being bigots without saying the overt bigoted things. It sounds like perhaps that has happened here. Like if you want to continue to discriminate against LGBTQ people, um, but you realize that if you just come out and say it, everyone's going to quote unquote cancel you. Um, then instead you focus on, on building, you know, 
talking about gender specifically or talking about it in a way that isn't so so overt but still sends a clear message yeah i agree i think things have definitely shifted in that way um however i would say that i think even though people the majority of people um you know are, are no longer as a society kind of out outly um saying horrifically homophobic things um transphobia is completely rife it is everywhere yeah that's and true. people um, do seem to be much more comfortable with being openly transphobic um so that also is something that i think um is still very much true uh today i know um yeah it's a bit of a kind of uh an example from from the uk or, or some conversation i was having the other day was comparing the headlines that um the the gay community was getting in the 80s um around um I think it was particularly around the the hiv and aids crisis but um but just in general um these really horrific um headlines around the the gay community comparing them and looking at them in comparison to the headlines that the transgender community get today they are very similar and that's terrifying so i think that's why it's so important for us as the lgbt plus community to stick together and to make sure that we are supporting our trans siblings um, and making sure that they are involved in everything that we're doing and that we are you know continuing to push and to um you know lobby for change that supports the trans community as well um i know that we talked earlier on about legislation and i feel like in, in many parts of the world when um, when certain countries maybe got marriage equality, there was a big chunk of the LGBT plus community that were like, that's it, I'm done. Um, we've, you know, we've got equal marriage, we're okay. Um, whereas actually when you look at the um, struggles of the trans community, there's so much further to go. And I think that's why I'm certainly really proud at IBM that this Pride Month, we've really focused on that theme of we're stronger together and making sure that we are joining the community together and we are championing um, these diverse voices within the LGBT plus community because, you know, we're conscious that when we look at um, the community, we need to make sure we are elevating those marginalised voices. Um, so that's definitely something that we are very, very passionate about and very conscious of um, is making sure that we create that safe space and, um, yeah, just supporting our trans colleagues and trans siblings and doing all that we can um, and I guess that goes back to the advocacy piece as well, because like CB said, the, you know, over a hundred um, of the um, horrific anti-LGBT plus bills this year have been specifically anti-trans. Um, so I think that's where it's really important that we don't lose sight and we're still focusing on making sure that we are supporting the LGBT plus community as a whole. You know, we're not just talking about sexual orientation. Right, right. Absolutely. We are getting a little low on time, so why don't we just take one last, uh, one last, I don't know, idea or statement from either of you about what can an organization do today to, to start moving in the right direction? I think um, from my perspective, I'd say to listen. Listen to your employees, learn from what they say, and sometimes it is going to take significant change. Um, there will be things in your organization that need to change on a bigger scale. Maybe it's things like restrooms, maybe it's things like policies or benefits, um, but just listen to your employees and to the community and make that change. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm actually going to get echo off of that because it is so, so key. And I think that, you know, the IBM jam is sort of in that way emblematic of how we view 
the future of creating more places of belonging. The, you know, the idea that no one person owns knowledge and gets to speak all the time. Um, knowledge is collective. Uh, you know, the 22-year-old the intern can be teaching us absolutely just as much as the executives. Um, and in fact, a big part of our problem as a society and, and just generally in the workplace and outside is this top-down approach to knowledge. Um, we know it doesn't work. We know that it only deepens inequalities. And so if everyone is able to act as a valid source of knowledge and information that's looked at and taken just as seriously, part of the decision-making processes, that, of course, will give us a more representative um, scenario and view of, of the actual world that we have. Uh, the more we hear and take into account the struggles of underrepresented groups, of course, the more inclusive our solutions are going to be because those folks had a, had a legitimate voice um, in the construction of those solutions. So 100% agree with Ella. First thing you can do is listen, um, whether that's creating a, some sort of an internal poll, hosting more uh, community dialogues, whatever that means for your workplace, that is something that any workplace can do starting today. Uh, it's been it's been great talking with you guys. I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time. And it's been very educational, too. I, these kinds of things, I always struggle going into them a little bit, um, even being an ally, because one, it's so complicated and, and rich. There's so much to talk about. I never know if I'm focusing on the right things or if we're, you know, have we painted a, a picture that is going to be of value to, to our listeners? But on the other hand, it's uh, I'm always afraid of getting things wrong, you know, or or saying or understand, you know, it's that fear that you guys sort of mentioned earlier that kept people silent for so long. Um, at some point, you just kind of have to jump in and just bumble, bumble through it. <laughs> people like me do anyway. You guys didn't bumble. You did great. <laughs> yeah, we're always learning. We're always learning. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Listeners. We're always interested in suggestions you might have for what HRWorks should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcast with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general, or if you just want to say hello. We are now available on Spotify and Audible, so you can listen to our podcast basically anywhere that podcasts live. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.